You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everyone. Uh, it is quite a full crowd. Uh, I think we do have quite a, f- uh, a few seats left if you are looking for a seat still. Uh, my name is Wesley. I'm one of the pastors here at King's Church, and uh, we're continuing in our series of Exodus today, in which we come to a very familiar passage. Now, today, as you see right in front of me, is also our Baptism Sunday, uh, which means that I will try to be a little more brief in the message time so that we can hear the testimonies and celebrate those whose lives have been changed truly by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now that's kind of a a tall task today because Exodus 14 is one of the most familiar passages in all the Bible. In fact, one scholar says that this particular uh, event that we're about to uh, talk about, the parting of the Red Sea, is one of the best known events in the entire Bible. And matter of fact, it's one of the best known events in the entire world, particularly in the modern developed world. It's referenced over two dozen times in the Old Testament. It has numerous allusions in the New Testament. And so today, with this very powerful uh, story today, we're going to do our best in a short amount of time to undercover the, the really depth of it and the meaning of it for us this morning. Now, a few years ago, Geico uh, ran a commercial. Anybody love Geico commercial? I just did a really good segue there, right? <laughs> <laughs> It's like powerful birds, Geico. All right, so uh, so a few years ago, Geico did a commercial, and I, I love Geico commercials because they're just comical and they, they make light of real things in life. And so uh, this particular Geico commercial had a group of teenagers that was showcasing a group of teenagers in a typical scary movie, right? Anybody seen this one before? They're like coming out of this like cornfield, like being chased by something, and they approach this like really abandoned house. And the first a teenager looks at the group and says, let's go hide in the attic. And the next one said, no, let's go hide in the basement. And then the next one's like, why don't we just get in the running car right next to us? And it's like this beautiful car ready to take them to safety. And they look at this girl and they say, are you crazy? Let's go hide behind the wall of chainsaws. And literally the whole group that goes, yeah, that's great. And they go hide behind the wall of chainsaws where the guy who's actually chasing them was present. Now, it's, it's funny, it's comical, and the, the tagline at the end of it is, if you're in a horror movie, you make poor decisions, that's just what you do, right? And uh, it's so true, but then again, there's something to that that I think is true of the human experience, and that is simply that when we are captivated by fear, we make irrational decisions. When we're captivated by fear, sometimes we come to illogical conclusions about life. Uh, a few years ago as well, I was uh, in the hospital with Abby, and we were uh, in the, the delay, uh, delivery room, the labor and delivery room with our second child, Harper, and uh, I just, I have this irrational fear of needles, guys. Like, just like shots, needles, I can't deal with it. I can never be in the medical profession. Uh, if I see one, I like faint. And essentially, they come in with what's called an epidural. Uh, if you're not familiar with what this is, don't worry. Uh, but it's, it's a shot. It's a shot that helps kind of uh, relieve the pain of childbirth for the mom. And so Abby's getting one and they pull out this needle, and I kid you not, man, you could joust with this thing. Like, it was so big. I mean, like, it just freaked me out. Like, I looked at it, one look, and I'm done. And so I start getting, like, pale in the face, and a little bit later, I literally start getting to the place where I'm, like, about to pass out. I'm so paralyzed by fear of this needle that all the nurses that were surrounding my wife as she's in labor come to my side to pick me up and put me in a chair and give me a juice box and check my heart rate and make sure I'm okay. All the while, while my wife is doing the most heroic thing she could possibly possibly do, uh, I'm paralyzed with fear with a juice box in my hand. <laughs> now, I share that with you because, again, fear, it paralyzes us. It sometimes makes us do things that are contrary to the best interests of ourselves and others. 
And we come into our text today, we see that Israel has just been set free. They're finally leaving Egypt after hundreds and hundreds of years of slavery. And you would think that the most rational response would be one of praise and trust in God. But yet, when Pharaoh's army encroaches upon them and their backs against the Red Sea, their, their conclusion is not one of trust, but of fear. They're paralyzed. They're fear. They're, cr- they're crippled by fear. One author puts it this way. He says, it took four days to get Israel out of Egypt, but it will take 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. They're crippled. They're paralyzed. It makes them run back to what actually made them captives in the first place. And I think this is something true of all of us today and why we can resonate with this text so much is because at times in life, we all become crippled by fear. We all become captives of something or something else other than God that leads us to make decisions and live our lives in a way that's actually not in our best interest. But yet, the beauty of this passage is in Israel's most fearful moment, the Lord fights for them. The Lord goes after them. The Lord redeems them. And that's really our main idea today of this text, as we're going to walk through it briefly, is that God alone has fought to set us free. Free from the very things that bring fear into our lives, free from the very sin that cripples us, free from the things that enslave us and keep us captive. God has fought to set us free. And so as we look at our outline today, I'm just going to ask two simple questions of this text. And this, these questions are not just for Israel, but they're, they're for all of humanity. They're questions we all have to come to terms with in life. The first was simply this, what do we need to be freed from? And the second question is, how can we be set free? Now, before we jump into the text, just by way of a brief recap, if you're new with us, we've been trekking through this book called Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible. And Exodus is really following the story of God's people as they sojourn to the land of Egypt. And after hundreds of years of being in the land of Egypt, they are now captives, they're slaves. They're enslaved particularly by this one pharaoh, this king of Egypt, who is just brutal towards God's people. And so God raises up this leader named Moses, and Moses meets God in a burning bush experience. And in this moment, he encounters God, and God tells Moses to go back into Egypt. When you go back in the land, you're going to commission, I'm going to commission you to tell Pharaoh and your brother Aaron to tell Pharaoh to let my people go so they can come into the desert and worship me. And Pharaoh doesn't like this. He rejects this. And so God sends plague after plague after plague upon the people of Egypt. And Pharaoh's heart grows colder and harder and harder. And he's captured by this evil to the point where enough is enough. God sends this 10th plague, which we talked about last week. And in this 10th plague, God is turning the tables on Pharaoh. Just as he killed the sons of the Israelites, God will now kill the firstborn in Egypt with this final plague. But God does something different than Pharaoh. He has mercy. He provides a mean, a means of escape, a means of deliverance through the blood of the lamb. We talked about the Passover last week and how it symbolizes this blood of the lamb, that the, the, a lamb was slain and the blood would go over the doorpost and this plague, this divine plague would pass over and they would be rescued because of the blood of the lamb. And finally, Pharaoh gets this place where he is just crushed and he's compelled to finally, after all this, say, you can go free. And so the people of Israel are now leaving Exodus, and they find themselves now sojourning into the wilderness. And that's where we pick up in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and camp in front of Pi-Harath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Bel-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land the wilderness has shut them in. 
and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So Israel's now journeyed out of Egypt, and we could perhaps say they took the road less traveled. It's not the most direct path to get out of Egypt to the land of Canaan. You'll see a map on here that kind of shows their route that they took. Uh, So they're the red line that goes uh, south, whereas the green up towards the green was the highway towards the Philistines, which is the most direct path to get out of Egypt to the land. But God takes them in a little bit more of an indirect route. And so Pharaoh looks at this, and his scouts are looking at this and saying, what are they doing? Like, did they not use their Waze app to get out of Egypt? I mean, <laughs> like, they found themselves, they somehow found themselves at Wendy's Island over in Northeast, right? Uh, if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, like, they are in the most vulnerable space now. Like, they have found themselves in a place where their backs are against the sea, and Pharaoh looks at this and he says, we made a mistake. Like, we need to go after them. And so he gets his army prepared, and they go and they pursue the Israelites, And notice as we continue in the story where the Israelites begin to fix their gaze, where they begin to look. It says in verse 10, And when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. Then then they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us out, taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses says to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. So the battle that is about to rage is actually not between the 600 chariots and the army of Egypt and the Israelites. The battle that is actually most vividly raging right now is who is capturing the gaze of God's people? Who is capturing their imagination? What is looming large in their vision? And and a rational person would say the logical conclusion would be God because they had just experienced his miraculous salvation of getting them out of Egypt. They have seen plague after plague after plague that displayed the mighty arm of God. And you would think that they would say in this moment, well, we have seen God give us irrefutable empirical evidence of his power and his commitment to us. He has brought the most powerful military and political society of the day to its knees. You would think their rational experience in this moment would be like, he did it 10 times, he could do it the 11th. Like, we're going to be okay. But that's not what they do. In this moment, the thing that captures their imagination, the thing that is looming large in their vision, the thing that is capturing them and holding them tight is Pharaoh. And they look and they fear him greatly. And because of this fear, they literally say to Moses, we would rather serve Pharaoh than die in the wilderness. They put themselves in a situation where they say, we have to go back to Pharaoh or else... Why did you just bring us out here to die? They're paralyzed with fear in this moment. And what is being exposed in their fear is this, that they fear losing security more than gaining freedom. And because of that, Pharaoh went from being 
their captor to their savior in this morning, this point, this moment. They look to him and they say, why don't we just go back to Egypt? It was better, Moses, it was better for us there. Like, why did you even bring us out here? We told you we didn't want to come out here. Like, why are we here? And they're forgetting wrongly the years of enslavement and the burdens that Pharaoh brought upon them. But then we see Moses, and Moses is different. Moses isn't paralyzed by fear. He's courageous. He says, stand firm. Don't be afraid. The Lord's going to fight for you today. Why is Moses so courageous? Because Moses has beheld the glory of his God. He has met with God. He knows his God. And the reason this is important, because this text reminds us of something we talked about week one in Exodus, and, this, and that's this, that our concept of freedom in our society is typically that we don't have any Lord or master of our lives. We're the captain, we're the captain of our own fate. We live for our own desires. There's no one who controls us. There's no one who dictates us. And we said week one, and we'll say it again, that is absolutely false. That's an impossible situation. It's fiction. What we see here in this text is that you're going to be captured by something. You're going to be a slave to something. You're either serving God or you're going to be slave to something else. You're never on your own. There's always something in life you're going to look to for meaning in life and a sense of your own significance. It reminds me of one of my favorite movies growing up with my dad, the, the original Rocky movie, in which Rocky Balboa, he says to his girlfriend when she asks him in the, in the first movie, why are you putting yourself through all this, Rocky? And Rocky looks and he says, I just want to go the distance then I'll know that I'm not a bum. Now, I say that because it's a great quote, but also because there's something about bumness that echoes with all of our hearts, right? At some point, all of us are looking to say, like, we don't want to be a bum in this life. We don't want to lack significance. We don't want to lack meaning. We don't want to lack the, the ability to make a difference. We don't want our lives to be pointless. And so what we do in the fear of that is we will gravitate towards something for a source of security, of hope, of meaning, of worth, of value. And for Israel, they began to gravitate back to the one who was holding them captive. They went back to Egypt in their hearts. They were giving themselves to a Pharaoh. And at some point in our lives, we give ourselves to some kind of Pharaoh of this world, and they all demand the exact same thing of us. Everything. And when it's not enough, they tell us to do more. And when we serve them successfully, it leaves us empty. And when we fail, they'll never forgive us. We all are serving something, which means that today you can be in this room and you can intellectually reject God. You can intellectually reject belief in God, but we are all serving a God. We are all serving a God in our lives, whether it's success, money, power, the approval of others, the applause of the crowds. We're serving something, and that false God will demand everything till it gets to the point where the Egyptians literally say, we have to serve him or we will die. But look what God does in the midst of this. Verse 16, he tells Moses, hey, this is how I'm going to deliver my people. You're going to lift your staff up, the, the waters are going to part, and the people of God are going to walk across the land, dry land. And then he says this in verse 17, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. What is God concerned about in this text at the end? He's concerned about his glory. And you say, why is God concerned in all this? Why is he concerned about his glory? Is he some needy God who just needs our worship? Is he desperate for us to give him approval? No. See, God realizes at the end of this that the only way to break the chains of fear is for the people of God to see that there is something more glorious than Pharaoh. There's something more beautiful than Pharaoh. 
There is something more powerful than Pharaoh. There is a God who is the only God worth giving our lives to. And what he's reminding us is that the only way is those who are made in the image of God, which we're all made in the image of God here today, those of us who are made in the image of God, he's reminding us that the only way we truly experience freedom is when we return to the God who made us. When we give him glory. As long as Pharaoh receives the glory of their hearts, as long as they are fearing Pharaoh, they'll continue to live as slaves. But the moment they see God and they're captured by his beauty, they're captured by his grace, they're captured by his glory, only his glory which can break the chains that hold them in bondage at this moment. That's where freedom happens. God says, I'm I, I want them to glorify me because that is what's going to break hold of the chains that is capturing them with fear in this moment. So the question for us becomes, who is winning the battle for glory in our own hearts today? Where are we believing in ultimate safety and security and comfort in our own lives? Because the answer to the question, what do we need to be freed from? We need to be freed from serving something other than God. Because if we're not serving God, then we're a slave to something else. It's only by God's grace we need his help to escape it, which leads us to our second question. How can we be set free? Pick up at verse 19. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before, before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. And then verse 21, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being on a wall to, to them on their right hand and on their left. We're introduced to a figure here. It's kind of mysterious. This angel of God, otherwise referred to as the angel of the Lord. It's not the first time we've seen the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. In fact, we'll see the angel of the Lord appears several times in the biblical narrative. It's always a very key moment, right? We look back at Exodus. We see at the beginning of Exodus, uh, when Moses is at the burning bush, it's the angel of the Lord that's in the bush. It's the angel of the Lord that speaks to Moses out of the bush. What does the angel of the Lord say to Moses? He says, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which begs us to ask the question, who is this figure that appears? And when he appears, every time he appears, the invisible, immortal God becomes visible and available to our senses. Who is this divine one sent from God in this moment? And here we see the angel of God. He's traveling in front of Israel to guide Israel. And now the text says he's moved to the back of Israel to protect them from the armies of Egypt. But it also says there's this pillar of cloud. And the pillar of cloud represents God's presence with his people throughout the book of Egypt. We're going to continue to see this uh, as, they, as they go into the wilderness, that God's uh, presence is with them. And this cloud moves from the front, which was guiding the people of Israel, to the back. And we see that this cloud provides light for the Israelites and darkness to the Egyptians. In this moment, we have to ask ourselves a question, who is this divine one sent from God? What is happening here? Well, this angel of the Lord, this angel of God, places himself in harm's way. He inserts himself between the people which he loves and the armies which are bent on their destruction and death. Here in this moment, the angel of the Lord, this mysterious figure, steps in and absorbs the fury of the onslaught of Pharaoh's army. We're picking up yet who this is? 
See who this is, the one sent by God who is God himself? the one who has made the invisible God visible to our senses. As John writes in the gospel, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only full of grace and truth, the one who places himself between us and the power of sin and destruction and death, the one who inserts himself and holds back the floodwater of God's justice and plunges himself in the waters of death so that we could walk on dry land. Who is it? It's Jesus. It's the eternal son of God the one sent by the Father who would step in history and lay down his life to set us free. He is the Lord. And this text reminds us that every other Lord, every other master, every other Pharaoh of this world that says, you must serve me or die, or will say, if you succeed, it will never be enough, or when you fail, you will never be forgiven. Jesus steps in and he is God, he is king, he is the only Lord we were made for. He is the God that doesn't say, serve me or die, fail or never be forgiven. He's the God who says, trust me and live. He's the God who says to our hearts, not filling it with fear, but melting it with love. He is the God who displays his power so powerfully here that he literally parts the Red Sea so that the people of God could cross from death to life across dry land. And notice how. How did the Israelites get across this land? Like, how did they get across the land and not Pharaoh and his armies? How did they experience death, but the Israelites experience life? It wasn't because of the quality of their faith that freed them, right? Just a minute ago, they were literally wanting to go back to Egypt, <laughs> right? Just a minute ago, they were, they were compelling Moses to say, hey, why are we out here to die? Let's go back and serve the one who is holding us captive. At least we had comfort and security there. What saved the Israelites in this moment? I can imagine as some probably ran, right, across the dry land. I'm sure some were walking very nervously, wondering if the water's ever going to cave down upon them, Right? It wasn't the strength of their faith that saved them. They were set free apart from the quality of their faith. They were set free, they were rescued because of the object of their faith. They were rescued because they believed in him and the text says the Lord fought for them. It had nothing to do with how great their behavior was or the quality or the depth of their faith or how strong their faith was. They believed and they crossed over from death to life and God made a way for them. It was the object of their faith that saved them. And so when Egypt and the the Egyptians and Pharaoh went into the same water to cross the same dry land, the waters consumed them. But Israel made it through safe. Now as we come to our, our time of conclusion here, in just a few short moments, we're going to see one of the greatest pictures of freedom in baptism. You know, the Red Sea is not the only time we see God deliver through water. In baptism, we're washed in that water. In baptism, we are proclaiming in an act of obedience to God that he is our deliverer and that we're united with our deliverer, Jesus Christ. As we close, I want to encourage us in this room just to sit with this text for a moment, to sit with the words of Moses and be reminded this moment that the Lord will fight for you. You only need to be silent to be still. Ask yourselves right now, where are we feeling paralyzed by fear in our lives? Where do we find ourselves buckling under the burden of performance? What parts of our past are enslaving us and holding us captive today? Where do we hear those subtle whispers that you must serve me or die? Friends, let's pick up our heads and look to Jesus today. Look to what he has done for us. 
Looked at how he stepped in harm's way for us. Look how he took the fury of sin and death for us. Look how he loves us. Look how he made a way for us to cross from death to life today upon dry land. How can we be set free? It is trusting in Jesus, the one and only one who can set us free today. Fear not. The Lord will fight for you. Today, you can come and give your life to him. You can experience freedom in knowing Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. What a powerful glimpse of the gospel this text is. How it reminds us of how you stepped in to history, Jesus, to free us from the burden of sin from the things that hold us captive, Lord. And I pray that in this room, God, we would cry out to you. We would fear not, Lord. We would know that you have fought for us through the gospel message. You have taken upon the death that we should have died. And we now live on that dry land. We cross the Red Sea and we sing with Moses songs of redemption today. And so Jesus, would you be with us now as we now see this act of baptism and celebrate lives changed by you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's my privilege to welcome uh, four baptismal candidates. If you all could just begin getting in position uh, this morning, it is our distinct honor as a church family to participate in a public uh, testimony of an inward change through this angel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we. I uh, had the privilege of getting to know these four uh, over several months, several weeks, or perhaps years, and have seen God's grace in their lives in uh, an abundant way. And so uh, we get the, the privilege this morning of celebrating all that he has done in their lives, his faithfulness, uh, his mercy, and his grace. And so I'm going to invite Mr. Gerald Laborsi up, uh, who will be leading us in uh, kind of presiding over uh, this morning's baptisms. Good morning, all. My name is Gerald Laborsi, and I'm a member here at King's Church. First up for baptism, we have Jimmy Freeman from the state of Tennessee. Hi, how are we? It's good to see you all. Thank you, everyone, for being here. I appreciate it. Let me see here. Hi, my name is Jimmy Freeman. I grew up in a Christian home and in the church. I was taught the gospel um, and was part of multiple Bible studies and small groups at a very young age. Growing up, I became very good at putting on a hypocritical face and making everyone believe I was a perfect Christian kid. Yet internally, I was broken, struggling with anxiety, insecurity, and sin. In high school, I was considered the innocent Christian kid and was looked down upon and made fun of for not sleeping around and partying. I was hurt by my classmates because I craved their acceptance and wanted to be considered a part of the inner crowd. Upon entering college, I had a lot of anger and animosity built up towards my former high school classmates. It caused me to rebel and to run away from the Lord, turn to partying and girls, and tearing others down or using them. I was put on this facade that my life was perfect and I was better than everyone else. Yet internally, I had a lot of anger and pain. This empty front continued all of freshman year and most of my sophomore year. 
where I look to the world to satisfy my emptiness while continuing to desire authentic relationships. By sophomore year, I began to feel empty and depressed and knew that my lifestyle was not providing fulfillment that I was searching for. With the beginning of my junior year, a friend saw that something was missing in my life and invited me to a Bible study. From there, I was shown love and acceptance and began to attend regularly, yet I continued to run back to partying to satisfy me. All junior year, I was living a hypocritical life with one foot in both worlds. I was trying to figure out who I was and the man I wanted to become. That summer, entering the senior year, I took an internship in Atlanta, Georgia. I had a pastor there begin to disciple me. The Holy Spirit opened my eyes to God's grace and love for me. Through the ragamuffin gospel, which is a great gospel, check it out, please. That summer changed my life because I learned to what it meant to be fully known and to be fully loved. That the Lord was not mad at me and was not trying to rip me off, but was trying to set me free. And what it meant to walk with the Lord and have a personal relationship with Him. <clears throat> Upon entering my senior year, I still made mistakes and fell back into sin. Yet I continued to confess and repent and turn back to the Lord. Through all my sin and my failures in my life, the Lord has been faithful and continued to pursue me. The Lord has not given up on me and has provided for me. And today, getting baptized is a picture of his faithfulness, his pursuit, and his provision for me in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Next up, we have Anna Sugg from the state of Missouri. Um, for those who do not know me, which is admittedly most of you, my name is Anna, and I have been going to Kings for about eight months, although I've lived in D.C. for close to 10 years. So I guess that makes me somewhat of a local. Uh, to be honest, I cannot remember a time when I didn't know Jesus. I grew up with a strong Christian, with strong Christian examples in not only my parents, but both sets of grandparents, aunts and uncles, teachers, coaches, and families in our church community that loved me as their own. I do not take the support system for granted. It was and still is very much an incredible gift. I remember asking Jesus into my heart at the young age of five, but my faith really grew and matured the summer before my sophomore year in high school. I can't pinpoint exactly what it was, but I remember coming back from a youth group summer trip with a renewed faith. It wasn't just one word or one moment, but God used a lifetime of ministry and encouragement to spark a change in my heart on that trip. As I look back on it, I see the hand of God in the timing. After that first year, my life started to see periods of intense difficulty and drought. I watched as the church I loved so deeply ripped apart and tried to take my family down with it. I lost a friend to cancer far too young and with too many things left unsaid. And I found myself in a difficult work environment where I battled against cynical and unforgiving heart every time I stepped into the newsroom. 
I remember one specific time in 2019, I was really struggling with God. I was enduring an especially painful season in my life where everything just seemed dark. There was no light at the end of the tunnel. There was no silver lining. In other seasons of trial, my faith had grown and been my lifeline, but this time I just felt alone. In honesty, there were days I deeply questioned what was happening and why I still believed in God and his promises in the first place. But in the Lord's goodness, he never let me go. As much as I fought and struggled, his steadfast love could handle my hurt and my anger. His truth could withstand my questions and doubts. I'm not going to lie to you, the process was not pretty. Um, but through his word and his abiding love, he slowly turned my heart into a spirit of trust and hunger for his word. The faith I had always known grew in ways I didn't know were possible. Which brings me to why I am here today. I've been a Christian for most of my life, but I have yet to make the public profession of faith through baptism. To be honest, I never really considered being baptized as an adult. It seemed like an outward sign of a recently changed heart, and I have been following the Lord, albeit very imperfectly, uh, for years. But I've come to the realization that, for me, it's a simple act of obedience. I believe his word is true. I know he will continue his work in my life until my final breath. And because I believe in his word and trust in his goodness, I am here today to make that commitment known. Next, we have Alyssa McConey from the state of Connecticut. Thank you all for being here with me today and sharing this experience with me. Uh, my name's Alyssa, I'm from Southern Connecticut. I've never been baptized, not even as an infant. Um, I attended Catholic high school and college and explored a couple of different spiritual paths during those years. Uh, throughout my life, I felt that Jesus would tap on my shoulder, but I never quite turned all the way around until now. Before I trusted Christ, my world was dim. I felt held back and I wasn't free. My mind would be taken over by great thoughts and I suffered from uh, anxiety and at times depressive days. I cannot find my purpose or passion in life. When I decided to trust Christ, it was during the earlier days of the pandemic. Um, I'd be interested, I had been interested by Jesus and the Bible most of my life, but was always hesitant. However, the interest still lingered. During those dim days of the pandemic, I finally gave up on living apart from faith in Jesus, figuring I had nothing to lose, and I gave my life to Jesus. I saw where the world was going, and I became keenly aware of the evil in the world, and I did not want to drift that way. As Matthew 13, 15 explains, for those people's hearts had grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and for their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. By Jesus' grace, he opened my eyes and ears and healed me during a dark time when much of my life and the world around me started to stray in the other direction. That other direction disturbed me, so I ran the other way, to the love of Jesus. Soon after, most of the anxiousness and dark days left me, and I discovered a passion that brought me here. Jesus opened the door to my new life in him. Since I've trusted Christ, I know I'm a daughter of God, worthy of his love and salvation. I want to walk with him, and I want to know him, and to make the most of my life here on earth for his name. With him by my side, there are brighter days ahead, and with Christ, I know what true life is. True love and joy feels like, and I will always seek truth in him. And as John 8.32 tells us, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And now I'm ready. Thank you. Thank you. 
last this morning, we have Katie Gantley from the state of New York. Um, thank you everyone who's come here today to um, support me in this. Um, so I knew God as a young child. I grew up Roman Catholic and went to Catholic school and was involved in the small Catholic church in my town until the early years of high school. Every night when I was young, I prayed to God before I went to sleep. And I remember seeking God's approval and guidance so much so that I would ask him every night to give me a miracle so that I could become a saint. Um, <laughs> during high school, I grew extremely distant from God and that distance remained throughout college and most of law school. During that time, I took many, many wrong turns. I alienated my parents and I made very poor. <laughs> I made very poor decisions which led to very sad sometimes traumatic and unfortunate events to occur in my life and to me. I had hardened my heart against God, even dissuading friends from seeking him due to my own experiences and anger. I became very cold and unforgiving of myself and in turn, uh, unforgiving of others. Looking back on all of my decisions and experiences to date, there's still a lot of pain in my heart at the damage I've done to myself and those closest to me. However, I know that God knows exactly who he created me to be, every single aspect of me. Sorry. <laughs> and uh, as I come to know myself and the Lord better, I know that those experiences and the contrast that it has created for me as compared to my life now was necessary to bring me to where I am today. I know that hardship and pain are like the micro tearing of muscle that is necessary to build you up and bring you back stronger. Slowly, God pulled me out of that place. Although I didn't realize what was occurring at the time, God was nudging me back towards the path that he'd set for me. I felt acutely and listened to the strange and unexplained nudgings, which is just what I call them, um, despite the fact that they're often exactly the opposite of what I thought I wanted for myself at the time. I was extremely doubtful each time I took God's path, uh, but ever so slowly, more good came about each time I listened to one of his nudgings. This goodness came in the form of friendships, mentors, and of strange and unexpected doors of opportunity being opened. Most of all, in every form, these were things I could have never imagined for myself, and to this day, I still sometimes am in disbelief at where I am now and how I got here. Fortunately, God placed very specific people in my life at the right time, and because those people, for whom I'm extremely grateful, I came to know Jesus and to understand the redemption we've been gifted through him. This took what now looking back seems like a really long time to realize such an obvious thing. Uh, but as I've learned sometimes, the answer you're looking for is really the simplest one sitting right there in front of you. Uh, through my own God-given curiosity and the guidance of friends and wonderful church leaders here in DC, as well as fragments of memories from my Catholic upbringing, the gift of the gift that God has given us through his son, Jesus Christ, finally clicked into place in my mind. And since that time, everything else has begun to click into place very slowly, making much more sense of the life that I've been given and giving me immense peace that nothing else or no one else could ever give me. I'm extremely grateful for my parents and the upbringing they provided for me that set a foundation to know the Lord, to my friends and uh, for their incredible support and to the Lord for revealing himself to me in perfect timing. And I'm most grateful for the sacrifice Jesus made to wipe away all of my sins. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.